I am the legendary Burl Bear. That man is Don Waldman, famed attorney to the stars and those who wish they were. That beautiful and talented woman is Judy Fay, the best straight woman since Margaret Dumont, which is why Ellen DeGeneres will not be dating her. Yes, welcome to True Crime and Strange Happenings in the World of Show Business. We have some strange ethical and perhaps unethical situations and guests today. Judy Fay has brought with her the famous Marvin Kaplan. True crime and Marvin Kaplan. That's yeah, but how do, you, how do you like that for a combination? Isn't that a great combination. <laughs> we have something for everyone. That's right. It's a real ethical dilemma. How do you pair these things together? We'll get to Judy and Marvin in just a bit. And uh, we'll get to a, a man named Jim Lickman. Now, I've met Jim personally, and I was stunned. We're going to talk about <laughs> what's right and what's wrong. Well, or, or what, uh, or it could be situational. Oh. Oh. <laughs> there could be variables here. As an attorney, I'm required to take uh, multiple ethics courses over the each three-year span and whatever, and I still have a problem telling you what's right or wrong in any given situation. Well, well let me... This should be the last person to tell you what's right or wrong. I didn't want to say that myself. <laughs> should be the last, next to doctors. Except... <laughs> He doesn't want them. Oh, okay. <laughs> Except Don Wallman is probably one of the nicest attorneys I've ever met. Yeah, we haven't had to face him in a courtroom. Yeah, I was going to say, come on down to court sometime. <laughs> that's like the dominatrix uh, whose customer said, she is so nice. He said, that's because he didn't pay me enough. You know, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Chris DeRose on, you know, animal rights activist and whatever. And we got into multiple discussions concerning this, that, and whatever involving animals and the age old. The animals are always right. Right. <laughs> and they're the loudest spoken. A and lot of innate knowledge and wisdom that human beings don't have. And one of the issues that came up also was the, you know, if you're not going to use laboratory animals, who are you going to experiment on? And it got kind of quiet at the other end of the table. Well, here we go again. ALF, you know, American mm. Liberation. American, animal Liberation. Animal Liberation Front tried to uh, set off a terrorist bomb on a UCLA researcher's car last night. Mm -hmm. Ah, And uh, evidently they got caught and whatever. And somebody should educate ALF that this is not creating a positive image for animal rights. In fact, uh, and we'll get to Jim Lickman on this topic in just a moment, Uh, recently came out under Freedom of Information uh, what groups in California, what peace-loving groups, have been infiltrated and spied on by the FBI under the latest regime. And one of them is... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are there any that haven't? uh, Hardly. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, if Al D'Amico's manager is a spy for the FBI, you know, checking up on Outlaw Radio... (laughs) But uh, In Defense of Animals is one of the uh, the organizations that's been spied on by the FBI. And so I did a little research on them. They're based uh, here locally. And, However, uh, I believe that the end never justifies the means. Thank if you. If the means are rotten and violent, the end's going to be not so wonderful either. And then people are going to sit there and say, well, you know what? I'm against the animals because they see what's going on. And I'm the first one to be an animal rights person, but that isn't the way you do it. Yeah, but you don't want to see people killing people over animals. Absolutely you not. See, you don't want to see anybody well, what about being killed. Iraq? I agree. What are they killing people over there for? They ran out of animals. Jim Lickman is on the phone. Jim, are you there? I'm here. That is Jim Lickman. Uh, I first met him through his book entitled "It's called The Lone Ranger's Code of the West." Do I have the title right there, Jim? Jim. Yes. 
Crank, 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 crank Jim up if you can, man. You can. That's as loud as he gets. Talk closer to the microphone. Oh, I'm, I'm here. Oh, you're there. Great. Well, I, I guess can... we should call him Kimosabi. Yes. <laughs> Jim, let's let's get down to the nitty gritty here with so many moral ethical dilemmas. What is the difference between morals and ethics? Yeah, I want to hear this. Usually, um, uh, it's the difference is usually about six drinks. Get up, bump. Okay. Well, actually, ethics. You know, ethics are standards of duty and virtue, indicating how one should behave. And that comes from ethicist Michael Josephson, who was really my ethics teacher uh, a while back. And I think it, it's aptly put because uh, ethics is not necessarily about Sounds the way like things are, but it's the, about the way things ought to be. <laughs> well. Can't hear him. I can hear you. Can't hear it, Marvin, because you don't have your headphones on. Yeah. Oh, you got to have headphones yeah. on. Is it worth it? Is yeah. that, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Maybe so you should turn you know Marvin's mic down on. a bit here. Hold on just a second. Is he is uh, is he got a speakerphone or uh, some kind of a uh, an uh, attachment to a cell phone? Because if he is, he should talk right on the cell phone, or the uh, if it's a landline, right on the landline. You got that, Jim. Uh, I'm talking right into the phone. I can, I can hear him fine. I can hear you now. Yeah, they're this fine. It's just like your hearing test. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, bring, bring Marvin down just a little bit, Matt. <laughs> are you, are, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear yeah. You. yeah we yeah. can hear you. Am yes. I doing a Verizon commercial or what? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to? <laughs> no, you're doing one for the deaf. <laughs> Okay, Jim, we, the difference between morality and ethics is a few drinks. Seriously, however. That's the difference between a pig and a fox. <laughs> and a well, pig and a poke. Morality, uh, Burl, usually centers around issues of, uh, you know, the bring in cultural or religious differences. You know, eating, eating meat on Friday when I was growing up being a Catholic, it was uh, against the canons of the Catholic Church to, uh, to eat meat on Friday. Uh, it involves, uh, you know, sex, uh, uh, basis of religion and how you're Don't brought up. Uh, ethics really, uh, what I like no about smoking. ethics is the fact that they're universal ethical <laughs> I mean, values no that really smoking. apply to all of us. You know, honesty, fairness, respect responsibility. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be treated with more tolerance and acceptance and respect than anyone else. It, it has no basis on any kind of cultural or religious background. So what then are the basic, the very basic things of, uh, of ethics? Ethics ethics involve honesty, being honest with people, straightforward, being fair, being loyal, being tolerant, accepting people's differences uh, for who they are as long as they don't invade your, your area. Um, you know, it, it, and, and basic issues of citizenship. We should all contribute to the community that we live in and treat others the way we ourselves want to be treated. Mm, sounds like utopia, but I don't know if it's the real world. Now, I, it's not, like I said, it's not necessarily the real world. E ethics is not about what the way things necessarily are. It's about the way things ought to be. And I think all of us, if one of us is caught in a lie with a friend or something like that, I think we all feel the the immediate impact when the friend finds out that we've lied to them, there's an element of, of trust that's lost in that relationship. And if we want to have long-term trusting relationships, uh, if we want to cooperate and get along with one another, then really, you know, it's better to be honest than not. Not always. There are... If somebody asks you, how does this suit look, and you tell them the truth, 
It's oh. not exactly doing them a favor. <laughs> <laughs> like if your girlfriend says, does this outfit make me look fat? Exactly. You can say, no, because you are. <laughs> well, now you, you've never there goes yes the relationship. <laughs> you, brought up, you brought up the one ethical dilemma that you should never get into. Never tell a woman... <laughs> <laughs> they really look. <laughs> that opens up a whole separate can. Unless you ask, say you look beautiful, honey. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah right. But, if, but the problem but is if you... When you critique people, you always have to bear in mind you're dealing with people's feelings. And what's more important to you, the way they feel or your ideas of how their performance should be? Well, you know, there are, there are ways, uh, and that brings up a good point, there are ways of being tactful and telling somebody the truth without hitting them over the head and saying they look like... Uh, <laughs> a piece of crap, you know, or <laughs> yesterday's uh, garbage or something. There are ways of saying, uh, you know, the right kinds of things. But the, but the bottom line is you don't want to get into a habit of always feeling that you have to, um, you know, submit your, your feelings, I mean, your, your opinions, uh, your honest opinions, based on someone else's feelings. What would happen if that person were to find out Say, for example, you know, your grandmother knit you this sweater. She gives it to you at Christmas time, and you think it's the ugliest thing that you've ever, you've ever seen. Now, Grandma asks you, what do you, what do you think about this? And you're going to sit there and consider her feelings and say, well, I think it's a wonderful sweater. Thanks so much for getting it for me. She comes over to visit you a month later, and she finds that the, the sweater's still in the box. Now you've got to tell a whole new series of lies. And once Grandma finds out that you've lied to her, the next thing that crosses her mind is, so what else have you lied to me about? Do you know I've never returned a gift? I have never returned a Christmas gift or any other kind of gift, unless it was something I absolutely could not wear because of size or something, because the thought of that person getting me a gift is more important than the gift itself. And I think that's something that needs to be brought out when you mention to somebody how they, uh, you know, you're telling them exactly how you feel about this particular gift, that an awful lot of love and attention went into the gift. Uh, You know, there are many ways that you can say this without necessarily hurting somebody's feelings. I got a couple questions I'd like to toss at you here. One from a a crime and corporate standpoint, and another from a, uh, an interpersonal relationship. No, oh, wait a minute. Let's just discuss the movie Michael Clayton. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful movie. Do you see any bre- breaches of ethics in that film? <laughs> have you seen the film? <laughs> well, have you seen the film? Yes. As a matter of fact, I wrote a piece on it on my that's on my website. Uh, back in, uh, I think it was April, March or April, I wrote a piece uh, called The Janitor that talks about the film Michael Clayton, a lot of ethical aspects. Oh, the whole film was breach of ethics in every direction. Yeah, yeah, it really was a, was a very interesting film. But With I a think, little murder tossed in for good measure. <laughs> for <comfort. laughs> what, was, what was sad about it mostly was the fact that how this man, who had apparently been a very good litigator, uh, had just more or less compromised his life in the sake of prestige and money. Uh, that's a unique question. Yeah, when has that happened before? You raise a question. The story of our next presidential candidate. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which we're going to get into later. (laughs) You you raise a question at the very beginning, I think, of of your book, uh, What Do You Stand For? Mm-hmm. Or how do you stand it? Uh, whichever, whichever title you prefer. And that is, you're, let's say you're at work. And I'm sure that uh, almost anybody who's worked in a corporate environment, of, whether it be Matt Allen, our brilliant producer, or, or Don Waldman, our, our attorney, or Judy Fay and Marvin have been in show business. And I've been in radio, which qualifies as some sort of perversion. And that is, if you do, you can do the right, you can do the right thing 
and get fired, or you can do the wrong thing and get a promotion. What do you do? <laughs> well, I think if you read the first part of the, the introduction that I have in that book, What Do You Stand For?, it talks about how someone more or less faced a, a similar situation to that, where I had a gentleman that came up to me after a talk that I gave in Philadelphia, and he told me this uh, wonderful story about how his father, it was, the, it was the depths of the Depression, he told me, and his father had been offered this job after having been out of work for some time, had been offered a job to work as a bartender in a local bar. And he was going to pay him uh, $35 a week mm. uh, now because he was having trouble keeping bartenders that wouldn't keep their hands out of the till. Now, $35 a week in the middle of the depressions is, is pretty good money. However, uh, this uh, gentleman had one particular problem. According to his own and his wife's religious beliefs, they didn't believe in drinking. So he decided to bring the decision home and me measure it against what his family felt about this. So he sat everyone, everyone down, his wife and his two kids, and this gentleman who was the younger kid was, was part of this family. And uh, the father lays out the circumstances and said, this is a good opportunity for us to make some money here, but you know, as you know, your mother and I don't believe in drinking. Do you think I should take this job? And the, the older son says, will Grandpa know about this job? And he says, no, Grandpa lives in the next state. He'll never find out about this. And Grandpa drinks like a fish. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's in another state. <laughs> and then the second question he asked him, he says, will God know about this? And he said, well, you know what? I don't think I'm going to take that job. And whether or not you believe that drinking is immoral or unethical is not the point. This man recognized that it was more important that his father stand up for his own integrity than anything else, even with a family to support. So, you know, in the eyes, all of us are role models for at least one other person in our lives. And it's in the critical situations of our lives, the, the difficult ones, where character is truly revealed. And this, this uh, incident had a great impact on this man who was, I think, seven or eight years old at the time. And when he was telling me the story, he was uh, in his 70s. And he said, whenever I had a difficult decision to make, I always thought about my dad telling us that story and what it meant that his integrity was very important to him. Now, I've heard Matt Allen, who is our producer and uh, the host of the show that comes on immediately after ours, talk about his commitment to not telling lies. Now, the, the, uh, the only time, according to, to Torah and to uh, Cecilia Bach, the world's leading expert on lying, is to save someone's life, it is okay, you know, to do that. Mm -hmm. You don't say, oh, Anne Frank, yeah, she and a family are in the attic right over there. Go get it. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, there are, it's perfectly okay to tell lies to save lives or to uh, someone to recover from an illness. Like, how am I doing, doctor? And they're on death's doorstep say, you're getting better every day is an impetus for the person actually to, to get better every day. Mm -hmm. uh, when faced with a situation of, Matt, will you lie? Tell this damaging lie, and we will pay you to this amount to buy off your integrity as a human being. Matt, from my experience with him, would say, no, I'd rather have my integrity in the long term than your cash in the short term. This is something about him I admire. There are other people, according to the study that you had conducted, mm -hmm. who didn't quite say that. Right. Oh, you're talking about the survey that yes. on honesty and trust in America. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, there, you know... Uh, a survey is a survey and is, is only going to represent the best intentions of most people, although I backed it up with certain scenarios that people had to uh, then respond to. Overall, in most instances, most people are, 
are pretty prudent in terms of, of knowing the difference between right and wrong and telling the truth and, and the consequences of those kinds of things. But, you know, it's when you get higher up in the food chain with people that are heads of corporations, politicians, uh, various elected officials. Who have no ethics and no morality. They, well, they, you know, That's a requirement. They do things and they think they operate in a different, different universe than the rest of us. And that's why we have to be firm and hold these people feet to the fire. I was a big fan of Elliot Spitzer up until, you know, this whole situation came out where he essentially told a lie to not only his, his family but the rest of the country in terms of, of his uh, noble ambition. Oh, he gave new definition to the word hypocrite. Yeah, it's, and, but, you know, but at the same time, we can't – we've got to guard against using – uh, having cynicism creep in and determine, well, if Elliot Spitzer can do this, then what difference does it make if I lie or cheat a little bit? We just can't, you know, cave into that kind of stuff because, after all, everybody's human. Everybody's going to make mistakes. But I think we all need to try a little bit harder, and we can in our own lives, to be as honest and straightforward as possible. Hey, I make mistakes all the time, and I'm the one that speaks on ethics all the time. But I have to go back and I have to clean it up because I recognize that in the long run, uh, it violates the trust that I have with certain either family members or colleagues if I do lie or mislead or deceive people. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a short break so that our local affiliates can tell you exciting true stories of the value of their products. And ethics and broadcasting. <laughs> and then we'll come back and talk about the FCC making <laughs> new deals for conglomerations. And when do you ditch your girlfriend, when she's sick or when she's healthy? We'll be right back. Dal 1989 i nostri sigari catturano i sensi. La nostra professionalità viene dimostrata in ogni sigaro da noi prodotto. E fumando un Filippo Gregorio te ne accorgerai. Hola, soy Filippo Gregorio e sto fabbricando puros che cattivano lo sentido desde anno 1989. Tengo mucha serietà nella elaborazione dello puros che si può comprovare in cada puro Filippo Gregorio che usted fuma. Salut, je suis Philippe Gregorio. Depuis 1999, je suis en train de faire des cigares qui captivent votre palais et vos sens. Je soigne la fabrication de mes cigares et vous vous rendez compte en fumant Philippe Gregorio. Hi, I'm Philippe Gregorio and I've been making cigars that titillate and captivate your senses since 1989. I'm extremely serious about my craft and you can taste why in every Philippe Gregorio cigar. In any language, Philippe Gregorio cigars. Simply the best cigar that money can buy. Felipe Gregorio, bringing tobacco to life. I know nothing, nothing. Ah, Padrone, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Is it your silky sweet wrapper? Is it your smooth-bodied aromatic smoke tempting me to vices unspeakable? Padrone, the exquisite torture you bring to me, not knowing whether to smoke you, build a shrine to you, or even to eat you. Padrone, Nicaraguan, to smoke or not to smoke, that is not the question. 
How many to smoke? Ah, now there's the question. Padrone, you've stood the test of time. There is no other. You stand alone. You make my life complete. Padrone, with you, I'm really smoking. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. Yes, it's true. We are back. We are live. We're alive and loud and black and proud. we got a plan to stick it to the man. Now, you think you've got problems? Two children and their mother lived for about two months with the decaying body of a 90-year-old woman on the toilet of their home's only bathroom on the advice of a religious superior who claimed the corpse would come back to life. Authorities said Friday, the children, a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old boy, 15-year-old girl, 12-year-old boy, cried hysterically Wednesday after a deputy who came into their home looking for Magdalene Middlesworth ordered them out because of the stench from her body. Alive. It's alive. <laughs> it's alive. Well, it wasn't. Now... This is Go a, to the bathroom. I don't. Apparently, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't there. That's the least of it. Believe me. <laughs> I'm sure. It, gets, it only uh, gets gets worse. Uh, yeah. Well, they they said she was still breathing when the, they put her on the toilet. Uh, but instead of calling calling an ambulance that the woman was ill, they called their uh, religious advisor, who said, "Pray for her. She'll come back to life." That was. Yeah, it didn't God. happen. Should have called the plumber. And she did for a while. She farted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's get, we have Jim Lichtman on the phone, and uh, an expert on, on ethics and ethical considerations here. A friend of mine had a, had a question. Now, uh, she, uh, she is ill. She has, uh, I can't remember what the name of the uh, illness is, but it has to do with the, the lungs, and it's uh, uh, incurable, and it causes... Mesothelioma? That, that thing that was always in, in asbestos? No, 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 but it, what it is is it causes she's always short of breath, and... Uh, Emphysema. Yeah, it's, well, it's... Uh, That's what it sounds like. Because yeah. uh, sarco- sarcoidosis, uh, that's what it is, pulmonary sarcoidosis. Anyway, point of the story is she's, she's quite ill, uh, out of breath a lot, can't, can't do much, and uh, usually quite a vibrant person, a vibrant personality. And uh, her boyfriend of four years uh, left the house and said, you're depressing, uh, I'm not coming back. <laughs> Just of, of all, a nice guy. Of, huh? of all times, too, you know, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. <laughs> She's lucky if she doesn't need a son of a bitch like that. That's true. But, the you know, the irony is that she was sick for a while with some other illness. And basically the guy uh, stayed with her for all these years. All and now them. all of a sudden um, he doesn't want to marry her. She had an engagement ring. They bought a house together. And true. now all of a sudden he's leaving because she's not fun And, we'll, and won't anymore. talk to her. Won't, won't even talk to her. Now, there's this, this raises an ethical dilemma. Jim, you there? I'm here. In ethical speaking, if you're going to break up with someone, should you wait till they're healthy or if they have uh, an illness that's not going to get uh, be cured, when's the right time to break up with them ethically? Well, when, when did her Medicare check come in? <laughs> well, she's, she's in the U.K. She doesn't have to she worry about Medicare. She doesn't get a Medicare check. <laughs> Too young, anyway. You know, if ethics were easy, everyone would be doing it. You know, it's just that simple. These things require great strength of character. 
And I think we all know, obviously, what the right answer is for something like that. You're either committed to somebody or you're not. There's no, really, there's no in-between. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate when we see examples of this. What, what, I, what I find particularly disturbing is the fact that the, the media is really quick to jump on these sensationalistic type of stories but the stories that we very rarely hear about are the people that do these active uh, ethical heroism, where they actually make these great ethical contributions that, that don't get as much nah, uh, crime don't sells. Get as much play. Yeah, red makes green. Always lead with blood in American yeah, news. Yeah, now, now we do hear well, the, the media are, are the main culprits. The uh, media are the main culprits in our society. They made news entertainment. Well, they definitely contribute to it. Let, let's put it that way. But there are stories all the time of people that do do the right things. And these are the things that we need to look at and examine so that we can model our behavior after, after those kinds of actions and those kinds of people. Give us a, a dynamic example. Well, uh, one of the examples that I like, of course, is the most obvious one is Jeff Wigand, the tobacco insider who came forward after you know, proving on 60 Minutes that the tobacco companies, all seven tobacco companies, lied before Congress. This is a man that, that uh, lost his job, his house, his wife, and for a time his reputation uh, was absolutely damaged by the Brown and Williamson, whom he worked for, because he was getting the truth out about the fact that not only did the tobacco companies know that nicotine was an addictive substance. Who didn't know? But, but I that smoke they were and actively I know that. manipulating levels in nicotine levels in cigarettes. Well, well, they should. And so that this was the this was the great lie that they were telling everybody, and it you know changed his whole life. He make he went from making a six figure income to going to teach at a local high school, and he still goes around the country and gives talks to different groups around the country about the uh, uh, the values or the unethical values of, of cigarette smoking, and he is making a difference in several communities. Also in the Netherlands and in Finland. Yes. Winston tastes good like a cigarette. Commercial. Not too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the one thing you bring up about uh, the difference in morals and ethics is, okay, let's say that you don't smoke and, and you choose not to smoke. I smoke. I enjoy it. And I'm glad they regulate the nicotine levels because I want them regulated to my pleasure and my satisfaction. I don't drink. And actually, I have a nebrophobia. I have a fear of people who are inebriated. I can't be around people who are drunk. And yet, other people, I believe, have the right to go to a bar and drink if they want to. I believe the- Not if they're driving. Not if they're driving. It's a different thing. Spill the liquor. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like it's a scorpion evil, only if it's in your boot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a, a relative thing there. So can you ad- address that for a little bit? Because this legislation of morality is making me crazy, especially here in California. Well, the so-called victimless crimes. Well, it's not, I, you know, it depends on what you're, you're defining as legislation of morality. I don't believe in legislating morality. We tried to do that with uh, liquor uh, many years ago, and that didn't work out. But I think when you think about cigarette smoking as an example, it clearly, you know, the, the secondhand smoke affects more than the person that's smoking. And I think that needs to be taken into consideration as well. So that when you have uh, a law such as they have in California, where you're not allowed to smoke in restaurants or in public buildings, I, I think that uh, speaks on behalf of the people that are not smokers that can be damaged health-wise based on the secondhand smoke. I think that's a perfect, perfectly reasonable position to take. You can take that position, but what about having a separate facility for people who want to smoke as a matter of choice? Don't they have that right? And they're I losing think- that right. 
I don't know if they have have it as a right, but I, you know, I think if if a group of people strongly believe that it should be a right, then I say go out and either run for office or get up a petition, and and push that through the legislature. You certainly have a right to do that and see what the majority feels that it should be happening. Mm. Well, see, I, I take kind of the the other end of the spectrum on this, and that's okay. People can agree to differ. I find it. Uh, uh, I don't mind putting my cigarette out because Marvin here is allergic to cigarette smoke, and out of That's courtesy right. to him, I put, I put it out because I don't want to, you know, infringe upon his health because he's sitting right here as my guest, and I certainly don't want to harm him in any way. Now, I enjoy when a smoker's around, I enjoy sitting back, relaxing, and lighting up a call, you know, a tall, cool KMPC, and, uh, <laughs> you know, enjoying the rich taste of fine tobacco. Actually, the rich taste of fine tobacco uh, is uh, all that tobacco is ameliorated with over 800 chemicals that are added. <laughs> and some of my favorites. And, you know, uh, so it smokes better. Yeah. Cigars. That's, Cigar, that's, cigars. That's exactly right. Well, cigars don't have as many, but they have probably about four to 600 different chemicals that are put into it. Cigars don't, however. But the, but the bottom line is, you know, if tobacco were a product that were coming out on the market today, it would never come out on the market because the FDA would uh, would take it would not allow it to proceed because it has too many toxic elements in it. But you it, know what? It's a don't different. Don't talk to me about the FDA. <laughs> They're in cahoots with the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, we all know that. And there's another ethical situation. Uh, you know, you know who is a big supporter, however, of the uh, tobacco industry is the coffee growers. Mm. And the reason for that is, is that tobacco is a legal product that is over. That, in my opinion, which I'm entitled to, is overregulated and oversuppressed for legal product. Uh, the coffee growers are concerned that the same thing could happen to them because it contains caffeine, and uh, even tea was once illegal in England because it contained caffeine, and they had blockades up to keep tea from coming into England. Uh, if you can do that to one legal product, you can do it to another. Well, that gets into a whole other uh, legal issue. Uh, let's uh, well, tell me the story about the woman who did not take her, uh, what do you call it, inauguration or her acceptance as, uh, what was it, as governor? Oh, Governor uh, Christy Todd Whitman. Uh, she did not take her inauguration after she was elected because a report was circulated uh, that there was some sort of manipulation of, of, uh, of votes or something through uh, black uh, pastors in a certain district. And it was discovered that her campaign manager, one of the people on her campaign, I don't want to say campaign manager because I don't have the story in front of me, but it was a, a, a high-ranking campaign official, had deliberately told this lie. And so she refused to take, um, uh, to take the inauguration stand until a complete independent investigation had been done to look into this whole thing and clear the whole matter up, which they waited, and the investigation proved that there was no manipulation. The guy had made up this story just for you know purposes of the press, and it sounding good at the time. I don't think she had a choice. And Well, they, do, they don't, but I mean, that's, that's one thing where somebody steps forward and they stand by their uh, ethical values, and, and that's what ethics is really all about. It's doing the hard, making the hard decision at a time when you don't have to, to do it because, legally speaking, she had already been elected, and legally speaking, she could have taken the oath of office straight off. You know, last night I went to your website, ethicsstupid.com, <laughs> and there I saw your picture of this balding man with a cigar in his mouth, and then I began, well, wait a minute, this is Rush Limbaugh. And I saw that you have 
picked up on what a lot of people have been talking about for many months, his so-called Operation Chaos, which is very, very simple, that Republicans will vote for Hillary Clinton in various elections to extend the election. And there's a consensus of people that believe that's how she won Indiana, because she won by, what, 30,000 votes? And I, I read your article, and I think you're also underestimating the power of the media and his rating base. He's probably the number one, number two rated talk show in the country. And everything he's doing, in my opinion, is really on the edge of violating the voter laws. Because you sure can't go out and pay people to vote. But look what he's doing to take away any feeling of credibility to the elections by doing this with his Republican base. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's what I was pointing out in the article, that somebody can have this kind of influence and power. What's the name of that guy who wants to sell his vote for a couple of million dollars? He's a, he's a, a special delegate. Super delegate. Super delegate. He wants to sell his vote for a million bucks. What ethics <laughs> that's ethics for that? you. <laughs> <laughs> How about two fifty? We've already established you're a whore. We're just negotiating price. <laughs> he's just getting ready for the convention. That's all. <laughs> Well, you know, the right to free speech is in jeopardy, and in three minutes we'll get into that a little bit, and then Judy Fay will hammer uh, uh, Marvin. Uh, right to free speech in jeopardy, but thanks to the Internet, it may continue. Federal Communications Commission basically gutted a rule that limits the number of both newspaper and television stations that giant media conglomerates are able to buy up in the same city. This means that a few giant media conglomerates will be able to consolidate even more control over media markets. Currently, six of these conglomerates control almost all of the media in the United States. Here's a quote. Consolidation of TV, radio, and newspaper ownership that has occurred already limits the scope of the marketplace of ideas and hinders vigorous public debate, thereby posing a great threat to the First Amendment rights of all Americans, said Carolyn Fredrickson of uh, ACLU's Washington Legislative Office. Few astute senators realize that this is indeed a threat to uh, democracy when you have the media in the hands of about six <laughs> brain-dead corporations with, with suits. Uh, as Matt and I can attest, we have seen in our careers in broadcasting what has happened to the industry, and uh, it looks like it could only get worse. Are there any ethics in broadcasting? Uh, yes, individually. That's it. <laughs> exactly. It's, just, it's still your basic right, wrong, but you were probably taught, taught as a kid and how you were raised. Yeah. There are no Edward R. Murrows anymore. There are no Walter Cronkites anymore. There are people who have blow-dried haircuts, who read copy, and who are totally prejudiced and owned owned by corporate interests. Yeah, you picked it before. Yeah, They're now entertainers. <laughs> yeah. I said, Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> well, he's well maybe, maybe there are seven corporate entities uh, counting you guys. Yeah, we're a big corporation here in a uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> 1870s style Virginia City bar in Matt Allen's backyard. Uh, we can, we're taking a break now, Matt, for our local affiliates, or he doesn't care. He doesn't know. <laughs> We'll be back uh, with Jim for some uh, parting comments from him, and then we're going to uh, have uh, Marvin Kaplan warm himself up. <laughs> we'll put the uh, Judy will be pounding on his chest, make sure his heart's beating for the next segment. We'll be right back on the Outlaw Radio Network. And now back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. 
Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with also the beautiful and talented Miss Judy Faye, best Listen, trade woman since hey, Margaret Dumont. Hey, Pearl, I, I'm aware that I put, I, I made it plural, but I was too lazy to go back and recut that. <laughs> we have a true, we have more than one crime on this program. <laughs> yeah. I did mention uh, that the FBI had uh, was spying on in defense of animals. This does tie in with the show we did about the horsies. Uh, in Defense of Animals, which is a locally based group, did sue the United States Department of Agriculture for uh, they they tried to do this thing where they wanted to take bids on the horses uh, that <laughs> were in the national uh, uh, the uh, oh, what do you call the name of the place uh, the Apache uh, Sid Greaves National Forest. <laughs> And they were going to take bids to have these horses rounded up. Well, in defense of animals, said, uh, excuse me. What happens after they're rounded up? Yeah, good question. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, wait a moment, uh, you're in violation of the Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act and the Administrative Procedures Act and the National Environmental Policy Act. And said, well, uh, would you please explain how the hell you expect to do this legally when you're violating uh, government policy? Well, it went, uh, of course, before the United States District Court in Arizona. And the district court said, you know, in defense of animals is absolutely correct. You folks are totally out of line here. Uh, back off. You well, can't yeah, do this. We're approaching a drought because there's some kind of little tiny fish in the Sacramento River where we get our water from that they have to cut down on the output because we're killing the little fishes. And Southern California is about to go into a very serious drought because of the, the little fishies. Jitty bitty fishy in the itty bitty pool. You know, how do you balance this? Well, it's difficult, but there was a guy on Ed Sullivan who could balance plates. And if we can find him, he can solve all our problems. Jim. Yes. Now, here you're faced with an ethical dilemma. Does a California go into a drought, or do you let the little fishies gasp desperately? Obviously, I think when the, you're talking about a, a greater good for the people, you have to make the decision that's going to be best for the greatest good in, in that regard. But, you you know, you need to modify and take a look closer look at some of these laws. Some of them, I believe, in my own opinion, just go a little bit too far. But uh, you just have to step back and consider uh, who are the stakeholders involved, who, who's going to be helped, who's going to be harmed, and what's going to be the best for the greatest number. Let me give you a real-life example because I deal with kind of bizarre ethics issues. I get a call from a client. We just started a trial, and he says, I can't stand this other lawyer. I'm pulling out my Navy 45, and I'm going to blow him away tomorrow. Oh. That was the issue because now it placed the burden on a, wait a minute, is this just a, a statement, a threat? If I go to the judge, it was a court trial, I'm going to prejudice this client, or is he really going to try to do something? This happened about... 10, 12 years ago when there was no security in the downtown court. So you could walk into a court with a weapon. Oh, my God. So th that's an interesting That's the ethical big problem dilemma. in this country. Anybody has access to guns. I mean, it actually, should be prohibited. prohibited. What, I, what I actually did is I contacted the bailiffs and made sure that they were there and did a pat-down. And then after the pat-down took place, I told the client why I had to do that. And I also let the attorney know with a condition that it couldn't be reported to the court. And he didn't have a gun, as it turned out. But that's the ethical dilemmas you run into in the practice of law. I think that's a that's a great way of handling that whole situation. Certainly can't keep it to yourself because you you don't know what the, if something had happened, uh, <laughs> and it was revealed that he told you in advance of this whole thing. I think whenever there, you suspect that there's a commission of a possible crime. Uh, well, that's it. There, there are uh, ethics statutes that basically say that if there's going to be a commission of a crime, you're obligated to do something to stop it. Yeah. But the question was, was that statement a crime, a threat, 
Just as or was he well, blowing off steam? Exactly. Well, you don't. But the fact is, you don't know exactly where it falls. So you have to act uh, in in accordance to what you think may be liable to happen. Yeah, because Don, if anybody he, who's stupid enough to make that kind of a statement has to be accepted seriously. Well, and, and again, why the hell would he say he has a forty-five or whatever? And that he's going to blow the guy away. Because before well, he became he, a prominent... He's crazy. He's, he's, <laughs> he should be put away. Before he became a very prominent director in this town, he was in the Navy for several years. Well, see, the, now, Don, if you would have said to yourself, hey, the guy is just blowing off steam, I can't take this seriously, and if he would have shown up and shot somebody, yeah. you, ooh, that no, would have... No, that's why I call the bailiffs. Yeah, I, I thought you made the, the right call on that. Well, tell you what, Jim, you, know, you and I may not agree on some uh, ancillary social issues, but we do agree on the primary underpinning of the entire conversation. And that is, when you get down to the real nitty-gritty of ethical decision-making, you kind of have that, that list there in your, your book of trustworthiness. If you can trust the person, if you can trust yourself. I think it's like, who'll know? Who'll know if you did this thing? I'd know if I did it. I'd have to live with myself. I'd have to look at myself in the mirror and go, you're the person who did this. That's it. It's a, it's a question of whether or not you can really look at yourself or you can sleep well at night or you can, the, the people that you live with, your family, friends, and co-workers uh, trust you as an individual. And the foundation, the success of all enterprises, be they uh, social or economic, is trustworthiness. You can't do a deal with someone if you don't trust them. Exactly. Now, I trusted you. You told me that I could, if I did this interview, you'd introduce me to Randy Nussbaum. Oh, that's a little bit of a... Randy Nussbaum is a character in one of my books, a fictional character based on a real person. So you paid off our ethics expert. Yeah, I did. I paid, paid, paid off our ethics expert by promising to introduce him to a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Dawn's the wife is the one with the whip. Uh, for those of you who haven't read my brilliant book, Headlock, this was inspired by a true story. I went to an author's event in Seattle. It is gorgeous drop-dead gorgeous young woman who's wearing an Yves Saint Laurent suit and a, a white blouse that doesn't quite cover her navel. And she has a little tiny person. She walks up and she wants my autograph and she leans over the purse opens and out rolls onto the table one thing and one thing only. A bottle of Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> You are so good looking. That kind of ruins the image. Yeah. Now that's an ethical dilemma. Yeah, that's right. You know, it could really be. <laughs> do you touch it? Do you not touch it? Do you go for it? Or you think? I think I better not. <laughs> they constipated. What's the big deal? <laughs> now she is if she drinks the bottle. Yeah. Uh, Jim, uh, Jim Lickman, his books, uh, The Lone Ranger's Code of the West. What do you stand for? You got another one too. Actually, I'm focusing on the website right now as well as working on a documentary on ethics. And the website is? Ethicsstupid.com. <laughs> Ethicsstupid.com. Yeah, I, I love that title, by the way. <laughs> it's a very interesting website, and you'll, there's a hall of fame and a hall of shame uh, in ethics on there, and you'll be surprised or not surprised who's there and, and who isn't there. Jim, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I hope you'll join us again when we want some ethical considerations. Earl, thanks so much for having me on. Okay, and you, can, pleasure. and you can buy all of his books. Buy from your local bookstore, go to Amazon.com, and uh, if you read my blog, you, i got a link there, too. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Okay, Judy Fay has brought along 
Marvin Kaplan. Judy, what? tell us about this character. This Well, first of all, Marvin, I'm one of your biggest fans. Thank you, and, sweetheart. You uh, can, can always use one of those. Oh, yeah, and I mean it from the heart. <laughs> and I just went to IMDb, which is a website for actors and theatrical people and people who have done movies. And, my God, the pages go on and on and on. You've done Mad, Mad, Mad World, The Nutty Professor, Love American Style, etc., etc. Catherine Hepburn got me my first job. Did she was, really? You want to tell us about that? It was 1949. I was in a play called Doctor in Spite of Himself at the Circle Theater, and she came backstage, and um, our interview was very short. She said, uh, in those days, the producer would introduce the cast as this is the cast. And so <laughs> she came up to me personally, and she said, you're Marvin Kaplan, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. She says, you've done a lot of work, haven't you? And I said, no, this is my first job. And she said, uh, well, you're very good in it. And, and um, something about her made me say something I, I, I guess I should have thought about before I said it. I said, you know, I, I, you, I don't hope you don't think I'm being fresh, but you remind me of my sister. You both have red hair and freckles. And she said, yes, this damn son. <laughs> and I figured that was the end of the interview. And, and then the next day, I was, um, I, I had an appointment with George Cukor at MGM to go see him for a part. And when I went there, he told me, your agent is Catherine Hepburn. Oh, wow. Not bad, huh? That's great. Uh, Marvin, also, uh, some people might or might not know, you've been the head of AFTRA for quite a few years. I was the president for over six years. Exactly. And um, basically, I want to know what you feel about should the actors go on strike? Should they not? What is your What is your ethical dilemma there? Absolutely not. Well, AFTRA seems to I had told the writers not to go on strike. Anyone who would listen to me, there's a thing called force majeure if if you if if there's a strike it's because management wants one and if management wants one that you have to look into the reasons why they want one and the reason with uh, the writer's strike was they had a in force majeure the law is that um, the, the words mean major force like earthquake or, or flood or, or uh, cyclone or whatever but it also means a strike. And the labor law says that if there is a strike and, and, and a company is deliberately being kept idle for over 90 days, on the 91st day, they can clear house. They can fire whoever they want uh, without severance pay. So it's to management's advantage once we fell into the trap, once the writers fell into the trap, let's hope the actors don't. Uh, it's to the management's advantage to have the strike last at least 91 or 92 days, which is exactly how long it lasted before they came back to the table. So they could fire everybody. Also, there are side effects to a strike. Uh, the work goes in an, to another place. They'll find a talent pool somewhere else. That happened with the voiceover people, the animation people. All the work went to Canada. Um, no, no, no. Strikes are the last resort they should have. And, and um, I think there are other ways. We have to be smart. We have to be smarter than management. Uh, we have to figure out their ammunition. They have stuff... 
libraries of things that they could, they could have the strike last 20 years if they wanted to. They can afford a strike. We can't. No, no strike. Well, I remember the last actor's strike, and we had discussed this. I'm also an actress, and I've done commercials, and it used to be my agent would send me out on a union commercial constantly. Now, all of a sudden, you sit there, and you go to the computer, and you look at all the commercials that are on now. Since the strike, 90% of them are non-union actors. Absolutely true. And it becomes a real problem. I know friends of mine lost their homes with the writer's strike, and uh, their families couldn't even find food at that point. And I'm so afraid that it's going to happen again, and with this town, we will be out of work completely. You see, there's one big mistake, an ethical mistake, if you will. Um, everybody, the, the union needs strike authorization from its membership. In order, so in order to look strong, you say, yes, I will support the negotiating committee's demands. But that's the last time the union gets in touch with you. The next time they call you, it's to give you picket duty. And what they should do is when they reach an impasse, and you make the union look strong by giving them your vote of strike authorization, but they should get back to the member before they declare a strike. Do you really want to walk? And if you, because, and a lot of people, I think the vote will come out very differently. I think the, uh, most members do not really want to walk. And the, the negotiating committee should consider all the ammunition that our enemy has. They, they can put on, uh, they can have us operate against ourselves. They can put on our old shows and not even have to pay reruns in many cases. Uh, they have libraries of material that can go. What they're finding out with the writer's strike is when they put on the old stuff, it was better written than the stuff that's written now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And people wanted to see the old stuff. Besides, Barbara, I saw you on TV the other night on a rerun or something, and you look younger then than you do now. I know. How did that happen? I don't know. I said, look, there's Marvin. He looks 20, 30 years younger. Yeah, I'm, Marvin. I'm still here, and I'm st thank goodness. Thank goodness, knock wood. Speaking of writing, you mentioned to me the other day that you are writing a musical. Do you want to tell I us about that? I finished the musical. It's called... Good House for a Killing. It's about a Shakespearean actor in the Old West. And my, and my, and my, and my composers are Richard Loring, who, who died about three years ago, and Scott Martin, who did the rest of the score. And uh, it's a very good musical, and uh, it was being considered at Chicago for their festival. And I'm hoping it'll be considered for the Writers Guild um, after SAG readings committee because it make a hell of a good reading it's a wonderful musical oh it sounds wonderful judy can play the part of the piano <laughs> I, no, I love a I piano i wish i had written a good part for judy I, I did. Yeah. Uh, well, those of you who are big fans of, of marvin kaplan and big fans of don waldman and myself and judy and matt allen don't go away because matt allen's outlaw radio program is next and he'll be hosting the show and we'll be driving him crazy and he loves marvin he's a big fan of marvin he was last seen cuddling up to his copy of mad 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 world going which one's arnold stang <laughs> we'll be back next week with with more crimes believe me thanks for listening don thank you judy thank you marvin see you next week Oh, da -da 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 -da. you know the problem is, Matt. No matter what I do, 
I can't get no satisfaction.